Welcome to Idle Chatter, brought to you by the Machinery Digest, where steel and soil meet. A weekly podcast by a New Jersey farmer to all farmers and ranchers across this great nation. And yes, there are farms in New Jersey. Regardless of the crop you grow or the livestock you raise, we all have one thing in common. Agriculture runs on passion, sweat, tears, and machinery, and that is why the Machinery Digest exists, a no-nonsense, grease-under-your-fingernails educational website. It was created to provide a transfer of knowledge so that you can maintain, service, and most importantly, understand today's complex farm equipment. My name is Ray Bohax, and I farm too. It is time now to get under the sheet metal. my friends, Ray Bohax here, the Hot Rod Farmer, and uh, this is the Idle Chatter Podcast from the FarmMachineryDigest.com, in case you've never listened before, and if you have listened before, I thank you, and if you're new, I, I welcome you to this podcast and also to my website, FarmMachineryDigest.com. There's a lot of technical information up there. And I also wanted to just talk a little bit about some things on the website that you may not be aware of for those that have been listening and also for the new people. There is the toolbox test and every month I uh, create a new toolbox test and if you were to take the test and submit the test so that we get your uh, get your questions uh, your answers I should say then you will immediately get emailed back to you the the proper answers to the questions so it's like a self-test that you could uh, see what you got wrong and what I've done with that is it's not just I'm telling you that the correct answer is A or B it's a multiple choice test but I explain why that answer is correct so I want it to be a true learning tool an educational tool for you because that's what the Farm Machinery Digest website and Idle Chatter podcast are all about education it's uh, hopefully I'm delivering education in an entertaining format so uh, so please take those tests they're a great learning tool not because I created them but they are a great learning tool and if you take the test and submit them every month I have a drawing a random drawing from people who've taken a test and submitted them to win a free USA made 100% cotton American grown cotton hot rod farmer t-shirt in your size obviously so please take those tests and I also invite you to read my editorial column my monthly editorial column which is called flags across the harvest and that gives me the opportunity I really enjoy writing that editorial column but it not only gives you the opportunity to see another side of me uh, if you would care to but it also is uh, I try my best to make it a thought-provoking and it's not a technical column it's a thought-provoking column and and hopefully it uh, resonates with you and as an editorialist I want one month for to to make you laugh the next month to make you cry uh, the next time to make you you know cheer and agree with me and then sometimes shake your fist at me and say I'm never gonna read that hot rod farmer again and I think that that's the duty of a true editorialist to evoke every emotion possible in in uh, their readers 
so I invite you uh, to check that out and you know please uh, send a reply give me your thoughts give me your feedback and also as we move forward with this podcast and also with the Farm Machinery Digest website if you have any ideas of topics that you would like for me to cover you know I'm all ears Um, I did an editorial an editorial excuse me a podcast a while back about uh, NIH not invented here and please know that I do not suffer from NIH that I need to communicate with you guys and you uh, guys and gals out in the farm community communicate with me and if there's a topic that you're really interested in then I would be more than happy to explore it and there's probably a 99.9% chance that I will do something with that topic either through the podcast or editorially uh, or technically wise as far as a, a learning series article or both a podcast and a learning series so please um, give me your feedback because as I said in the beginning of when I launched this only not even two months ago that this is your podcast and this is your website so without any further ado I am going to get into the subject matter for today and today's talk is going to be uh, about the right to repair And within the agricultural community, there's a lot of buzz and there's a lot of activity with the farmer's right to repair their modern equipment. And um, there's a lot of information going on. And like so many things is, you know, real news and fake news and something in between. But I want to talk about that today. And what I'm going to do today is going to be something a little bit different than I've done in the uh, so far with only the uh, podcasts that I've created. I think this is podcast number 9 or 10. I've lost track. But this is going to be a two-part series. So this week will be part one of the right to repair. And then next week will be part two of the right to repair. It's a complex subject. And I don't, and I want to give it uh, all that it is worthy of. And I think that it's a two-part subject. It's the farmer's right to be able to get access to their equipment to service and repair it. And then the second part will be I will discuss uh, something that people don't discuss when they discuss right to repair. They put the entire onus on the manufacturer, but there is also an onus and a responsibility on the farmer to be able to learn the technology that he is asking the right to repair. So it's a double-sided sword like most things in life that you could uh, ask for something but you know as the old saying is sometimes you know uh, watch out what you ask for or pray for because you may get it and and that's what part two is about but you know I want to start this by saying that I am a hundred percent in agree in agreeance that the farmer should have the right to repair and but with that right to repair also becomes a responsibility and a commitment and that'll be in next week's podcast and then what I'm going to do also I do have uh, two letters in our special delivery section and one is from uh, a gentleman with a uh, Tom I don't know where he is from came through email and he has an issue with a John Deere 670 combine model year 2016 and it's setting a code for overspeed of the turbo and I did choose this letter specifically uh, today not that I wouldn't have answered it otherwise but 
lots of times I'll just answer the letters directly in email to the person and not put it on the podcast but since we're talking about the right to repair that this is really a uh, it's very timely so thank you Tom and we will read that later on and the second letter is from Gene in Nevada and I kind of messed up on his I don't know what had happening maybe we had a glitch in the website or in the email of something and uh, his letter really didn't come through properly and but I do know what his question is about and he's talking about uh, the use of in-tank fuel fuel injector cleaners with gasoline direct injection engines that are very common today for instance like the Ford EcoBoost engines and pickup trucks and in other applications also so I have to apologize to Gene from Nevada I will answer your question but I will have to paraphrase it from memory because I had a faux pas here with the computer system so that will be later on and also just wanted to add that if you are listening to this through Ag Daily uh, from Carbon Media please visit my website and likewise if you're listening to this on my website please go to Ag Daily and see what they have to offer they have a lot of great things there and they have some videos and just some uh, some other podcasts so I want st- as usual I'm a storyteller I want to start with a little story and just in last year I bought a new weed whacker for for the farm here to cut around the fences and to cut around the house and we put up a temporary electric fence in our cornfield and I need to uh, to keep the deer out so I need to be able to keep the weeds down from that and what have you and prior to that in 2009 I bought a new cub cadet weed whacker and it was a four-stroke weed whacker and I really loved it and I do remember that it was in 2009. I am anal that way. I like to always make a mental record of when I buy my equipment and put it into service. And I also make a, a written record. But I bought this weed whacker. It was a four-stroke weed whacker instead of a two-stroke. And I really, really loved it. And it worked great for about uh, seven or eight years. And then it started to give up the ghost and started to have some uh, carburetor issues. And then also started to... Uh, have some issues with uh, I guess one of the rings was started to go away it didn't seem to have much compression anymore so whatever but I you know took great care of it and it really wasn't I got it in tractor supply it was like a $150 weed whacker so and I guess if you get seven or eight years out of it and I and believe it or not I ran mobile one oil in it and it actually seemed to pick up some rpm with the mobile one oil when it when I got it when it was new but anyway it was time for a new one and they no longer offered that model and I said well I want to be loyal the Cub Cadet gave me great service and so I bought a new Cub Cadet and it was a two-stroke model and I did not go with the four-stroke model for I don't remember what the particular reason was last summer when I bought it but anyway as great as the four-stroke ran when I bought it back in 2009 this two-stroke was the exact opposite um, it idled fine. Well, I guess it idled okay. I shouldn't say it idled fine. and But it had a terrible bog and had no power. And you had to feather the throttle to get the RPM up. And it also came with, they called it a brush cutter attachment. So it came with a metal blade. And it was so low on torque that if you would, you have to really feather the, thro- feather, feather the throttle. <clears throat> excuse me, feather the throttle to get the uh, blade going because it was heavy. In engineering, they call that the moment of inertia when something goes from being at rest to uh, 
to movement. And in drag racing, as a side, the hot rod farmer, we talk about the moment of inertia quite a bit to shock a drag slick uh, to get it to wrinkle the wall so that so it gets traction. But anyway, the moment of inertia, MOI, uh, it really didn't have enough power to evoke the moment of inertia, and you had to feather the throttle, and it was just bogging, and it was just, just really very disappointed in it. And I knew what was wrong with it. I said, you know, this carburetor is not adjusted properly. It's it's too lean, and it idles okay, not great. I love I love idle quality. To an engine guy, idle quality and throttle response is like a picket fence stand of corn in a field. And, uh, I mean, it's something to be proud of. So, And I looked at it, and I said, i got to try to adjust this carburetor. But lo and behold, it had what was called tamper-resistant screws. And you look in the owner's manual, it says, carburetor cannot be adjusted and must be brought to an authorized service center. And, you know, not to be... <laughs> Not to be whatever pompous or anything, but you know I've built carburetors for years and raced carburetors and tuned carburetors, and I know how to adjust a carburetor, just like 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 most of you listening know how to adjust a carburetor. But what happened was that it had a tamper-resistant screw, and it was what was called a single D screw, and so you needed a special tool, and the screw was recessed into the casting. There was a uh, a boss on the carburetor, and without this special tool, you couldn't get in there. So I said, well, that's no big deal. I'll just you know call up uh, the Cub Cadet dealer and buy the tool. And then I called a couple of Cub Cadet dealers, and, oh, you can, and they gave me, oh, you can't buy that tool. We can't say that tool. One guy told me it's illegal for them to sell me the tool, which I really don't think so, but it's illegal. I called cub cadet up themselves which is a division of mtd and they said that i have to be an authorized dealer to buy the tool and you can't buy the tool so basically in essence i use this as a lead-in because i they took away from the owner of that and it wasn't just cub cadet but they took away from the owner of that weed whacker the right to adjust their carburetor so in essence that's to me the right to repair and then ultimately, I did a uh, internet search, and I found a company in Florida that offered the tool. And you know, some people tell you they make one in River. I'm too my life is too busy to to fool around with trying to make a tool for to adjust a carburetor and weed whacker. But anyway, so I bought the tool. It was seven dollars. It was a screwdriver handle, and it was the single D. And I put it in there, and I started the weed whacker up, and I tweaked the low speed. And it was maybe a sixteenth of a turn, and I tweaked the high speed maybe an eighth of a turn rich, and this thing is like unbelievable. I went from cursing this for six months and uh, using words a Christian man shouldn't use and just being so frustrated with it to, I mean, the throttle response is phenomenal. I mean, you it's, it's like a top fuel drag, so you blip the throttle thing once it jump out of your hand. Power like you couldn't believe. I put the metal cutting blade on it, and it just, it just, it just great. I mean, it went from, from a tool that I really wanted to put in the dumpster and to something that uh, that I love, and simply, and that you know that falls into the into the line of this podcast with the right to repair, and I just could imagine how many weed whackers Cub Cadet takes back because the carburetor carburetor mixture screws need to be tweaked a sixteenth of an inch and a sixteenth of a turn, excuse me, and that's my lead-in to this podcast. Now, keep in mind, 
uh, for those of you that may be new or even those that have listened, that my background comes from the automotive community, automotive engineering community. And I really think that the agricultural community and the farm groups, and I hope that they're listening to this, and if they're not listening to this, then maybe one of you would be kind enough to pass this on to them and let them listen to it, is that I think that the approach that they need to take is to look at the auto industry. And since I come from the auto industry, everything that is happening within technology and agriculture has happened 25 to 30 years ago in the auto industry. And matter of fact, other than like the auto steer that's on uh, farm equipment today or the past 20 years, farm equipment, the electronic engine controls, the pulse width modulated circuits on sprayers or anything else, anybody from the auto industry I mean, that's, to tell you the truth, I'm saying respectfully, we've had that 30 years ago. I mean, you talk about a pulse-width modulated circuit. One of the first pulse-width modulated circuits that came about was in 1981, or actually 1980, but 1981 across the board, with General Motors with what they called an electronic carburetor. It used a mixture control solenoid, which was a pulse-width modulated circuit. And uh, at the time... So, like I said, none of this stuff is really new, and only because I have 30 years of experience in the auto industry, and it doesn't make me any smarter than anyone else, by no means am I saying that, it just means that I have 30 years worth of experience, and what has basically happened in the agricultural community, specifically with engines, is that we've gone from a pump line nozzle, strictly a 100% mechanical engine, to an engine that is run through electronics and through an injection system and a microprocessor with no segue, no bridge. And at least in the auto industry, we had a bridge. And the bridge was that we had, a con- we had back years ago, we had a points distributor, points ignition, breaker points, and a carburetor. And then the industry went to electronic ignition and a carburetor. And then it went to a electronic carburetor with an electronic ignition. And then it went to something called throttle body injection and obviously kept electronic electronic ignition. And then went from throttle body injection, which is, for those of you that are not familiar with, that's half carburetor and half fuel injection. It's got a fuel injector that sprays over a throttle plate of a, like, looks like a carburetor. carburetor. So it's a little bit of a uh, hybrid system. And then they went to port fuel injection, which means an injector for each cylinder, and then they went to uh, distributorless ignition and then coil unplug ignition, and now gasoline direct injection with coil unplug ignition. So we had this, over the past 30 years, we had this transition, and this allowed a good technician, and the operative word in this and that statement is a good technician because just like every farmer is not a good farmer or every doctor is not a good doctor or any other profession, that not every technician is a good technician. But it enabled a good technician that came in on the ground floor to be able to build his learning skills and his lear- his skills, not his learning skills, his skills, and to also be able to have a foundation as more technology was added within the diesel community and within the so this also is for trucks and other equipment but for the agricultural community the agricultural technician or the farmer that was used to work in his own equipment you know came from one day having a pump line nozzle motor uh with everything mechanical and a and a piece of farm equipment that had 
minimal to no sensors on it and then went and all of a sudden he was uh, blessed to get a new piece of equipment and it was it became like the you know the Jetsons of the space age he went from everything mechanical to everything electronic and then to add to it about this right to repair and then the uh, the ability to access things but let me build into that so anyway so just I ask you to please stay with me with it and I'm talking for a reason so that you could have a smooth transition into this but due to EPA emission reg- emissions regulations, what has happened was that electronic controls were added to automobiles for around, for the most part, for the 1981 model year. And General Motors came out with their system, which was called Computer Command Control, CCC. And Ford had their system, which was called EEC electronic engine controls and they had different generations eq1 eq2 eq3 eq4 and chrysler had their own system and i and i forgot i don't think i don't even think they really named it but maybe they did i don't recall but anyway and this was all due to stricter emission control standards and does this sound familiar well that's what's happening in farm equipment right strict emission control standards but also in farm equipment we're adding other other sensors and other technology as far as the operation of other aspects of the either whether it's a tractor whether it's a sprayer or whether it's a combine to add more efficiencies to it and more controls and lots of times more data uh, better data sensors yield the different monitoring from the cab and what have you so in essence, what the federal government called that in the automobile industry, and the automobile industry also encompasses light-duty trucks. So when we say automobile, it means pickup trucks also and vans, anything that was that the, the weight classification by the EPA is light-duty. And because of emission standards and fuel economy standards, they started to integrate this. And then what basically happened was that every company, we'll say the three manufacturers, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler at the time, had their own system. And then they, and each system had its own ability. The most advanced system by far was the General Motors computer command system because that enabled you to plug in underneath the dashboard with a tool that is called a scanner. And they had what was called an ALDL connector, which stood for Assembly Line Diagnostic Link. And then some people referred to it as an ALCL connector, assembly line communication link, where actually a little bit of trivia that when the car was still being in the factory, it was called the ALCL. And once it rolled out of the factory, it was called an ALDL because it was diagnostics. And General Motors, to its Delco division, developed this, this ECU, this computer that ran this engine. And what it basically did was it had something called serial data and serial data meant that you could plug in with this dedicated scan tool and you were able to eavesdrop on the conversation that the engine was having with the computer and the computer was having with the engine and you needed this dedicated scan tool and you were able to buy this scan tool and because sensors work on electricity and computers work on electricity is that you uh, you were able to see all these different voltages so it's a TPS throttle position sensor 0.72 volts but you had to know what that means oxygen sensor 0.48 volts you had to know what that means so you were able to have this 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 conversation by simply plugging underneath the dashboard and 
to make a to make a connection to modern farm equipment you know if you if you were to go to a dealership currently and you had a problem with a uh, a later model piece of equipment that had electronic controls the dealer technician would have some sort of software and he would take a laptop computer today instead of a dedicated scanner and he would have some sort of interface cable that would plug it someplace and he would get a version of serial data and this was all started by General Motors at the same time Ford and Chrysler did not have that ability Ford you had to actually break into the circuit disconnect the harness from the from the ECU the control the, the brain unit the control unit and plug in what was called the breakout box and then you would have to look up it had all different pins I think it had 96 cavities and then you'd have to look up in the shop manual and put a voltmeter in and read the voltage but it wasn't intuitive like the General Motors because the General Motors system on the scan tool told you throttle position sensor oxygen sensor coolant temperature what have you and then Chrysler had a quasi version of something like the Ford so then later on as so as the 80s progressed and into the early 90s then what had happened was that um the other manufacturers ford and chrysler came out with their own dedicated scan tools and started to read serial data but by uh general motors was way way ahead of them and to tell you the truth every system today with its serial data link has its lineage whether it's a you know case ih uh, combine or a 2018 Dodge Ram pickup truck or Ram pickup truck has its lineage back to the GM computer command system and serial data links from 1981. And then what had happened, those systems were called OBD1 and the federal government mandated that there had to be a way for the interface of the computer and the engine control system to be communicated with and that was called OBD1 onboard diagnostics first generation and then the rumblings that we hear today in the agricultural industry were there with the uh, car industry with the independent repair shops and the car owners saying that well we want to be able to fix this and to defense of the industry to the automakers you were able to always buy a scan tool and buy wiring diagrams and schematics they meant, may, may not have meant anything to you but you were able to buy it but the problem that the independent repair industry had was that uh, if, let's say you had a, a repair shop in town you would have to buy a certain scan tool for a GM car a Ford car and a Chrysler car and then every year they would update that and in the beginning stages of that the early 1980s or so you would have to buy a complete new scan tool every year because a 1982 Buick would not communicate with a 1981 scanner or a Ford or, or an AMC at the time what have you so you had to buy a whole new tool and this was quite costly for the repair shops to do this and it actually became problematic and it you know it has overtones of what we're going through now so the auto repair facility now to add insult to injury to this it really that's probably not a, a good way of saying it what complicated was that the EPA mandated that the automakers guarantee anything that was emission control related for five years or 50,000 miles so in essence 
even though the vehicle may have had a, a bumper to bumper warranty of 12 months 12,000 miles anything emission control related related was guaranteed for five years and 50,000 miles so many people in the auto industry said well I'm not going to invest in a scanner or I'm not going to invest in understanding this because for the first five years or 50,000 miles if the check engine light came on which was also GM's uh, doing to have a, a warning light the other manufacturers at the time did not and the people would go back to the dealership and if the car was less than five years old and had less than 50,000 miles it would be covered by the manufacturer for free so if the check engine light came on and or there was a drivability problem one of those cars a lot of independent garages said well look I'll do your oil changes I'll do this I'll do your brakes but the check engine light is on or it's not running right bring it back to the dealer and they'll fix it for free and then what had happened was that from all of this conversation for the 1996 model year within the auto industry they came out with OBD2 now there was onboard diagnostics second generation had a lot more ability had a lot of other things which I won't belabor you with now but the point of me talking to you for 10 minutes about this is that the federal government said that this idea of having all of these everybody has their own independent language and independent scan tool will not work so there had to be a commonality between all of the vehicles sold in the United States whether they were domestic or imported so from the 1996 model year which is almost 23 years now frighteningly is that there had to be a commonality and there had to be certain data that was provided that was in a common language and the independent repair facility could buy the one scan tool and that would work on a 1996 Toyota it would work on a 1996 Ford a 1996 Buick what have you so let's stop there the first thing that the agricultural industry needs to do as we move forward in my estimation with this right to repair is to have the federal government get involved you see I'm gonna break away for a second agricultural equipment even though the majority of farms in the United States are family farms is looked at as commercial equipment by the government so it's looked at no differently for the most part than a, a mine operator or a shipping company with a ship or a, a big construction company with a crane it's not looked at as a family business and there are, there are not laws to protect the purchaser of that equipment as there are in the automobile industry because it's it's looked at as a corporation is buying this tractor or a corporation is buying this crane or a corporation is buying this tugboat or this locomotive it's not you know that you're sitting down with your wife and at the kitchen table and making a decision to go buy a three hundred thousand dollar combine so that's another thing that I think needs to be represented within this right to repair is that it needs to be made clear to the legislators that these are family farms that these are not corporations yes they may be incorporated for tax purposes but they're not corporations buying this equipment and then anything that happens to this basically in essence the decision was made at the kitchen table but also the the money to go to repair it and to purchase it comes right off the kitchen table and sadly lots of times right right out of your your out of your mouth
I mean, I, I know what that's like, that, you know, I'm there, I farm also, that if I decide to buy a piece of equipment, I have to find the, the, the revenue from someplace, and oftentimes in a small farm like ours, is that you make the choice of, you know, not going on vacation to buy the, the new planter or vice or whatever. So what needs to happen is that we need to to partition during this right to repair, we need to petition a common language by a certain date, and obviously it's not going to help you going backwards. And then also we need to to show the legislators that, you know, no disrespect to any other industries, but at least within the agricultural community, we need to be able to have access to information, and it needs to be a commonality. Because if you on your farm, let's say that you run, and I, I know that brand color gets everybody agitated so please forgive me right so i'm going to say that you run a uh, green tractors and you run green tractors and you run a uh, red combine and you run a uh, a uh, sprayer with a cummins engine in it well as it stands right now if we got everything we wanted for right to repair that you would actually need three different softwares and three different uh and three different scan tools or interface cables, what have you, to read those, and there would be very minimal commonality between those languages. So it would be very, very hard But uh, for you to understand. That would be like back in 1983 for a fleet. Let's say if you were a trucking company, you had Chevy pickup trucks, you had Ford pickup trucks, and you had the time Dodge pickup trucks, and you all had engine management systems on them because of the year they were made, that you would have to have all of these different softwares, and you'd say, man, I really like the way Chevy did this, but I, I don't like the way Ford did this, or I, I wish I could read oxygen sensor voltage so easily on this Chrysler, but I can't do it, and the thing is that so you would have that, so you know that's something that we're going to have to live with until we get some commonality, and then that commonality will only be a uh, applicable from a certain production date so the thing is that so that's the first thing we need to we need to petition petition to, to have a, a common language and a common scan tool or software today it would be a, it would be software and an interface cable through a laptop or uh, and then we need to also uh, to be able to <coughs> have the legislators recognize this as a family small family business that just that that generates a great deal of revenue but also spends a good deal of revenue so that is where we're we're at with that now the next thing that comes into play is that i've listened to a lot of these people talking red magazine articles and within the agricultural community and there is a misconception within the community and you know, people think that they're going to plug into these systems and it's going to give them a code and the code is going to basically tell them that the brown wire that goes to the crank sensor that runs behind the feeder house on the combine is a mouse ate through it and it's touching metal and that's what the problem is. And and I see that as as a common theme whenever anyone talks about the right to repair in this industry and I have and they interview these people and the, and the person says you know and I'm, I'm not being disrespectful I always say that that you know the guy says, well if I could get the codes I could fix it well, I'm not saying that you can't fix it but the most important thing for you to keep in mind is that 
on a system that uses electronics that has what's called self-diagnostics, which issues some sort of trouble code. And I don't care whether that's for a, a seed monitor or for an engine controller or for anything that offers a trouble code, that historically those are just sensor circuit codes. They are what's called within the industry circuit codes. It's identifying that there is a problem in that circuit. And you know, in the car industry and still today, people think that, oh, there's a, a, a oxygen sensor trouble code. Well, they go buy an oxygen sensor for $400 and put it in. It's not saying that. You have to go through the diagnostic routine and you have to be able to interpret the output voltage on that oxygen sensor. So on our end of the aisle or our side of the aisle, we need to recognize that just getting a trouble code in probably 75 to 80 percent of the time and maybe even more is really only identifying a circuit and it's not necessarily a sensor issue so you know keep that in the back of your mind when i answer uh, i think tom's question uh, in the special delivery section so we need to realize that the sensors are actually just information gathering that they don't know what they're looking at and they're sending a voltage to the ECU to the electronic control unit or engine control unit whatever you want to call it and they are interpreting that voltage so so don't don't fall don't fall or lull yourself into some sort of uh, false security thinking that if you could get the sensor get the codes that it's going to give you all of the answers all it's going to do is identify the circuit that has a problem and then at that particular point you're going to have to go down the diagnostic routine for that now also keep in mind i did a quick search uh internet search on trying to find some shop manuals on newer equipment and and it, i i came up with with uh with answers that were uh basically neither here nor there and it seems I went to John Deere and it seems that John Deere, even though they started, you know, they're saying that the software is theirs and we'll discuss that in part two of this podcast is that that you can buy shop and service manuals with diagnostic routines for late model equipment. I went to Case IH's website. I did not. I was not able to find that at that particular point that doesn't mean it doesn't exist i just wasn't able to find it and then i also went to a uh to versatile because i figured they're you know not as much of a major brand and i wasn't able to find anything there so i'm going to look at that a little bit more but in essence to round this up for part one is that the industry needs to recognize that we need to push for a common language, a commonality with the software and to be able to have some access to the to the serial data link, which basically is the communication that the computer is having with all of the sensors on the machine. I don't care whether it's a combine and it's in its engine and controls and harvest sensors or what have you, or a tractor or a sprayer. So we need to be able to have a commonality there and to be able to have that that uh, that serial data link and that needs to happen at a, at a given date so that you could be able to communicate with the same tool to all of the pieces of equipment that you have uh, going backwards it's going to be an issue but but there are ways to get around them we will discuss that in the second part of this podcast which is going to be next week
So the take-home message here is that the agricultural industry needs to look back at what happened with OBD1 in the car industry and then OBD2 and the commonality of the language. Now keep in mind that once the government mandated that commonality of the language that they mandated certain things that need to be seen but still there are aspects of that serial data that only a proprietary tool will give you uh, let you see but 99% of the times you would not need that all right uh, to fix some sort of problem with the piece of equipment and we'll touch on that a little bit uh, a little bit more next week so now it's time for the special delivery segment and I will read this letter to you because I do have this one my name is Tom and I read you in Hemmings Muscle Machines successful farming and now on your website I really enjoy what you are doing for the ag community, and I listen to each of your podcasts. Great stuff. Well, thank you so much, Tom. And, uh, you know, a lot of farmers are into cars, and I, you know, definitely found that out over the years. So uh, it's great that you read me, and I'm, I'm humbled by that, So I, and I mean that sincerely. My question has to do with an issue I am having with my John Deere 670 Combine model year 2016. It is setting a code for overspeed of the turbo and cutting back the power. I had this problem last year and then it went away by itself. So far this year it is fine. It seemed to happen last year at night. This year I have not run the machine after dark. I know this one is a hard one for you, but if you can steer me in the proper direction, I will greatly appreciate it. Thanks and God bless. Well, thank you so much, Tom. I don't know where he's from. But in a nutshell, if you are having an issue... Uh, with some sort of electronics, whether it's engine management, this is an overspeed of the turbocharger, and there is actually a sensor on the shaft of the turbocharger reads the RPM, and then it, and it, you would be able to see this all through that serial data link, which I was talking about a few minutes ago, and it compares the throttle angle, the engine RPM, and the boost pressure to determine, and it has an algorithm. It says, okay, based upon this boost pressure, this throttle angle, and this engine RPM, and usually it looks at incoming airflow uh, into the engine, that we should have a turbocharger shaft RPM at this speed. And if we don't have that, it flags it, and it usually goes into a D-rate mode and puts some semblance of a check engine light on. What I can say here is that I would run this combine with the headlights on during the day. I would load the electrical system because the hallmark of what you're saying, and I may be 100% wrong, and the, uh, the hallmark of of having some sort of electrical issue, whether it's with engine management, a monitor, or a yield monitor, or what have you, on a piece of equipment, when you load the electrical system, is either a poor ground, a high impedance ground someplace in the machine, and or a weak diode in the alternator or a charging circuit that is that is weak and it's usually not a charging circuit that is weak it's usually either a high impedance ground or a diode that is weak and when the electrical system is loaded a diode and if you go on to the farm machinery digest website i have a uh, a learning lecture hall series an audio on how to uh check a diode and if it has a weak diode in the system, then it will start to feed in what is called unrectified AC. And when you feed electronics an unrectified AC signal, because for the most part, engine management systems and, and anything on a, on a vehicle, a piece of equipment works on 
on, on DC, not AC. And if you feed it unrectified AC, all bets are off on where, on how it's going to respond. So I would say that since the dealer could not find anything, and they probably just scanned it and erased the code and could not find anything, I would have to say if I were a betting man, and you know I'm a betting man because I farm, but I bet with God on that. I don't bet on John Deere or anybody else. And... Uh, and I would say that if you run it with the lights on and you put the lights on during the day because the alternator doesn't know whether it's dark or not, I would say it either has a weak diode in the alternator or it has a high impedance ground. And my bet would be on a weak diode in the alternator. And usually when you have a weak diode in the alternator, you may be able to see some degradation of the charging output, but... Um, you may not because it just may be feeding it some unrectified AC. So try it with that, and then if you get a chance, just put the headlights on. It could be during the day, next time you're harvesting, uh, and do it towards the end of end of your day. So if it sets that trouble code, you don't go into limp-in mode, then you could go back home and erase it. Usually you disconnect the battery and it'll erase the trouble code in most applications and then see if it happens or wait till after harvest and i would say that you would need to put an oscilloscope uh on the charging circuit which we'll explain in part two and you'll probably have a weak diode feeding it some unrectified ac so give me give me an email at hotrodfarmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and i will uh work with you through that and let me know uh when what you find and if that's not the case i'll still work with you through it then it's probably a ground circuit now gene from nevada he writes about using it i he says you often talk about well, he doesn't say this i remember what he said because i kind of messed up and messed up his email in the computer here somehow or or what happened I'm not going to try to explain that one. But anyway, is that he wants to know whether in-tank fuel injected cleaners, like I often recommend, Chevron Tecron, would work on gasoline direct injection engines, let's say like Ford EcoBoost engines and pickup trucks. Great question, Gene. And an in-tank cleaner, like Chevron Tecron fuel system cleaner, that basically will work on cleaning the injector and also clean the deposits are IVD intake valve deposits and CCD combustion chamber deposits on gasoline direct injection it means that the injector sprays right into the combustion chamber like a diesel would and does not spray in the intake port so that type of cleaner will work to clean the injector which is imperative for the injector to be cleaned to atomize the fuel properly it would also work to clean the deposits which we call combustion chamber deposits from the crown of the piston but will have no effect whatsoever on IVD intake valve deposits which are a paramount concern on modern engines. On a port fuel injected engine or a carburetor engine a product like that will clean intake valve deposits and combustion chamber deposits and the fuel injector what you would so to answer your question it would be two modes of action like we talk about pesticides instead of three modes of action it would be two modes of action cleaning the injector which is important and the combustion chamber but will not clean the intake valve deposits to clean the intake valve deposits on the gasoline direct engine you would basically need to use a a drip-in tool there are a number of companies that make a tool and you put a chemical a carbon removal chemical like gm top engine cleaner in it and you hook it up to a vacuum line 
and you have a, a a valve that you open up and has a restrictor in it so it drips this chemical in and you run the motor at about 2000 rpm until a bottle drips out and there's a number of products like that now and then that would attack the ivd on a gasoline direct injection motor and what is happening the past couple of years the early gasoline direct injection motors were just gdi gasoline direct injection but the but most of them today and i know the later ford echo boosts have both a port fuel injector and a uh, gasoline direct injector so they actually run in one mode off the port fuel injector and another mode off the gdi and they switch back and forth unbeknownst to the to the consumer and part of the reason for was that is that there was so much all of these engines were building so much carbon deposits on the back side of the valve that they were impeding airflow and not running properly so if your later gasoline direct injection engine be it a ford or anything else has both port fuel injectors and gasoline direct injection then you could use an in-tank uh cleaner as like chevron tecron or seafoam whatever you like i particularly like chevron tecron it's the industry standard and then that would be fine because when the gas when the port fuel injector is evoked it will clean the carbon off the back of the intake valve but if it's an earlier gasoline direct injection engine then you would have to use an in-tank cleaner to clean the injector and to clean the carbon deposits off the piston crown and you'd have to use what we call in the industry a drip in tool to clean the deposits off the intake valve so the so that's basically it if i said that correctly so uh if i didn't mess it up when i was talking so the in-tank cleaner will clean the injector and the piston crown and then the dripping tool will clean the intake valve and will have some effect on the piston crown also but nothing on the injector all right it'll definitely have effect on the piston crown so listen thank you so much for listening i'm trying to cut these back down to under 50 minutes and uh, i greatly appreciate it. remember next week is part two of your right to repair and and what you need to know and what the industry needs to know in my estimation to move this forward and i just want to wish you all a blessed blessed day and always remember as i close that the hot rod farmer is pulling for you the american farmer and rancher and my beloved beloved america you have a blessed day and i will hopefully talk to you next week